Okay, welcome again to On Sunday School. That, thank the, you. Thank the place uh, where we de Sunday Schoolize you. <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> yeah, we got we've got like combined fifty years to unpack. Yeah, I I guess so. And hours and hours of Sunday school and seminary and institute and and wasted time to unpack and deprogram. So that that's this is uh, on Sunday school. So I like it. Okay, on Sunday school me. What are we mm-hmm. on Sunday schooling about today? Okay, so you know the term the shelf, right? Mm-hmm. So every ex Mormon talks about their shelf, and they park. They they hear something at church, or they find out something about church history, and it just doesn't work, and so they put it on a shelf and forget about it. But then eventually, the weight of the things on the shelf gets so heavy. You have put so many, you've you've brushed so many things aside that the shelf just collapses under its own weight. And what we're describing when we talk about the shelf is cognitive dissonance. So it's this kind of psychological principle that the mind can't have contradicting ideas within its brain or else it causes severe distress, right? Mm -hmm. So when we talk about the shelf, we're talking about cognitive dissonance. You have this idea of how the world should work, of how your religion should work. It's entwined with who you are. You find things that are contrary to that. Your brain can't cope. And so you park it and try and forget about it. Right? Right. So there's actually, I believe, a second shelf that ex-Mormons go through is that coming to terms with how wrong the church was and how you were a willing participant in it causes such a shock to your sense of self that you reject that you were wrong about it. It's hard for you to comprehend that you were just wrong. In a large part, nobody held a gun to your head and made you do anything. Yes, family members can be a little bit crazy and put a lot of pressure on it, but ultimately, like people go inactive all the time, Mm -hmm. but you decided to stay in and now you have to come to terms with yourself. And it's you, you park that on a second shelf and it manifests as anger. You become so angry that you lash out and say things like, oh, it, you know, sarcastically, I'm sorry for what I did while I was Mormon, as if you were like possessed by something, as if that wasn't you <laughs> making that choice. Right. Right. And the church lied and manipulated me and controlled me and brainwashed me. And it's, well, you were the guy at the the helm, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what this episode is about, is about unpacking your second shelf, admitting to yourself that you were wrong, and then moving on. And if you stick around to the end of the episode, I will tell you a horribly embarrassing story about myself, which I'm okay sharing now because I have admitted to myself I was wrong. And I'm okay with the things I did. 10, 12 years ago when I was fully believing in the church. So um, Alex, I mean, sorry, Elder uh, Jackson, (laughs) why don't you just tell us a little bit about any cognitive dissonance or your anger phase? Yeah, I'm, I I still have a little bit of anger, but I think most of my anger, I, because, so my leaving of the church, I feel like was a lot slower than most people. I don't think I had the shelf in the same way that a lot of people did. Because right. I was taught the everything in seminary I had 
good teachers and I'm young enough that they were actually talking about these things, the gospel topics essays started coming out and everything while I was still right. In so when seminary. you say you learned when you learned everything, what I, you, I learned the church's like learned perspective the ugly on parts it. of church history. You right. Got it. Yeah. It was a, a slightly whitewashed version, but, you but were it was aware talked of the about ugly issues. Right. Yeah. Right. And so for me, I didn't have a shelf in the same way because I remember learning about the Mountain Meadow Massacre in seminary. And yeah. my seminary teacher talked to us about that and yeah. said, yeah, it was awful and those people were wrong and, you know, whatever. And and so for me, growing up, it was like I never thought about that stuff. Like that wasn't yeah. I wasn't sitting there finding out about this and being like, oh, I'll put that away. I was told right. about it and then I was told the apologetics for it. You know, I learned about all of this stuff. But then what tipped me off was just like seeing how things didn't quite make sense. The biggest one where it started was, okay, you pray about the Book of Mormon, you get an answer, right? Which, of course, I never got. So mm -hmm. that was confusing. But then when you get your answer, which, of course, is that it's true, that means Joseph Smith's a prophet. And that means the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the true church, which doesn't follow because there are multiple churches that hold Joseph Smith as a prophet, right? And so that was kind of the first thing for me. And then I started unpacking it. I never mm -hmm. really put things away, I think, in the same way that a lot of people do. I did mm -hmm. pretend, I did go along with things, but the whole time in the back of my head, I was like, oh, I'm not so sure about this, but I couldn't share it with anybody. So I think I skipped a little bit of the anger phase. Um, you didn't have the same sense as a feeling of betrayal and yeah. being misled as what other people did. Yeah. The church yeah. was hiding something. Well, and I, I think I was especially lucky because I had, you know, a fairly moderate family. Like we weren't, you know, we did all the things, right? We spent dozens of hours each week doing church stuff. But it wasn't like the center of your family's universe. I Well, it was, it was, it was okay. but it wasn't in like, a, you're going to do this and you're, you're going to like it. Right. 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 And I don't know if it would have been that way if any of us tried to not show up to church one Sunday. Right. Because right. we all we all went. We all went willingly, yeah. you know. So, yeah, I don't know. I think I got lucky on the whole on the whole shelf thing, on the whole anger face. I have right. things that I'm mad about that I think are stupid. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think I skipped a lot of that phase. I so. It wasn't like in our seminary curriculum, but I remember I had friends who were either Baptist or born again Christian, and they give me the typical kind of Joseph Smith's polygamy, collab, all these kind, of, you know, uh, those kinds of things. And then I talked to my leaders about them. My leaders were actually quite upfront about them. So even though I wasn't formally exposed to it, I was exposed to it. And when I talked to leaders about it, they were as forthcoming as they knew how to be. So I was aware of all these things as issues, and I wasn't in denial about them. And so even when I hear people who leave the church over them, over like the CES letter concerns, I'm just like, there's so many other reasons to leave the church over. Like, yeah, that was it. That was it. Um, one thing probably from my earliest memory that was a shelf item is this prophecy in the Book of Mormon where they're talking about Joseph, like Joseph who was sold into Egypt. And it says, and I saw a vision. and there will be a prophet in the last days named Joseph and he will be named after his father 
and he will be named after me and he will redeem the people just like I have done. And I remember reading it and I'm like, too convenient. And I remember reading it even on my mission and just like turning the page and forgetting about it. Because to me, that was just something that was so bogus. See, but I, th- I saw that the opposite way because I had, because I was brought up, I never even questioned it. I was like, oh, yeah. well, of course the Book of Mormon's true and everything. That's what, you know, that's what my parents taught me, right? And right. I have good parents. I thought they have no reason to lie to me about this. Right. And so I, <laughs> so when I read that, I was like, wow, that is really, really thought impressive. thought it was amazing. Hey? I, yeah, I thought it was amazing. And now, of course, looking back, I laugh because right. it's not amazing, right? Yeah. But at the same time, if it, if it had been too vague, you could have been like, oh, well, that's how fortune telling works, right? You can, you know, mm-hmm. you can misconstrue anything, but then it's too specific. And then it's like, oh, well, that's convenient, right? But then at the same time, he's the guy writing it. Like he's yeah. literally the, <laughs> the scribe. I know, I know. Like he's the guy dictating it, right? And uh, dude, I watched the South Park episode on Mormonism last night. Have you watched that before? I've seen like clips of it. It's so good. And because just the way he says things and then they've got that background music and the choral, the chorus says dumb, dum 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 all the time, right? So Joseph Smith will be like, an angel Moroni appeared to me and gave me these golden plates and told me I'm supposed to translate them. And then the people are like, well, where are they now? The angel took them back. And then the music <laughs> right after is like, dum, 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 dum. <laughs> just the way they phrase it in that, like, it's not dressed up at all. It's very, very simply what actually happened. You're like, yeah, that is retarded. It's so convenient. Right. Like, yeah, everything. <laughs> I remember telling, I had a, a friend and, and her mom asked, was asking me church questions. And she was like, well, where are the golden tablets now? And I was like, well, the angel took him back to heaven. And she said, how convenient. I right? love and I was like, <laughs> like, I was like, you know, that might've been a mini shelf item for me too. Cause I really had no, I think I just told myself, I'm like, well, she's an atheist wickedness of the world. The devil has control over her heart. And that's why she's so sarcastic about these things. <laughs> so good. It's like the, there's so many things that just make total sense when you're mm-hmm. there, right. Yeah. When you're in it. And then as soon as you get out, you're like, wait, <laughs> wait a second. Right. It's like, I remember seeing uh as a kid i saw the easter bunny one yeah. night you convinced I, yourself right yeah yeah I, I remember that you know but of course now i'm like well obviously you know like i must have seen my my dad walk past you know the crack of my door right yeah. and yeah. thought, oh is that you know is that the easter bunny that must be the easter bunny yeah or you just convince yourself you see it because you so badly want to see it kind of like how you get an answer to prayer right exactly yeah. yeah, yeah, you work yourself into some spiritual delusion, magic, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'd say one of the the shelf item I had. So I had a few of those while I was a teenager of like reading things either in the Doctrine and Covenants or Book of Mormon, where I was just like, "How convenient!" And then I just park it. Um, but I'd never process and work through it. And I think if I had taken some time, I would have just said, "Oh." This is a load of crap. I don't care what my parents say. Mm-hmm. I'm getting out of this as soon as I turn 18, right? Um, but I didn't. I didn't. I just, you get so many messages, at least I did, of you're just a rebellious teenager. You're working through this thing. And then I had friends who are a couple of years older than me who were 
had been rebellious and then they were going on missions. So it was kind of like these things that I find problematic. It's just me being rebellious and I'm working through this phase, just like my friend worked through his phase and now he's on a mission. So I'm going to work my way through it and get on a mission too. Mm -hmm. And then I realized as I got older, it wasn't teenage rebellion. It was this dissonance. It was me parking things on the shelf and not working through it. Right. I'd say the biggest, do you have any more shelf items you want to talk about? Uh, no, no. Okay. We can, we can on the shelf part one. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just, I'll say my biggest shelf item when I turned 18 and I was going to be become an elder and receive the Melchizedek priesthood, the stake president at the time made me reconfess every sin that I committed. Yeah. I heard that's a common thing. Yeah. And that came out of nowhere because I'd been told in so many youth lessons that once you confess of something and repent of it, then you're, you're home free. You're, you never have to talk about it again. Right. Which kind of makes sense with the whole doctrine of repentance, but in the bureaucratic church, like you've never fully repented. Right. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So, so he, and I, have you seen Braveheart? No, I haven't. Sadly. Okay, Like pretty much every Mormon has seen Braveheart and then they all confess to feeling the spirit while they see it. Like that's the, if you ever get Mormons to debate on R rated movies, Braveheart and Save Him Private Ryan always come up because they'll say, well, I've felt the spirit while watching some R rated movies. So you have to use your own judge. Right. Right. Uh, anyway. So there's a scene in Braveheart. William Wallace played by Mel Gibson gets betrayed by his friend, Robert the Bruce, and he falls over. Cause he's so surprised once he finds out the betrayal. And that was how I felt when the stake president asked me to reconfess all these things. Cause it's not that just that I confessed. It was like, before I confessed, it was like five years of breaking the law of chastity and repressed guilt. It, it, so it was just like a headspace. I did not want to go back to. Right. And I really was glad to have left it behind, but now it's coming back again. And so I confess everything, reconfess everything. And the state president just kind of smiles and says, Oh, you really must have gained a testimony of the atonement through that or something and pats me on the back. And and so I kind of got through it, but I remember telling my parents and their cognitive dissonance was so intense that they could not process it at all. I was like, the state president made me reconfess. And they're like, that doesn't sound right. I'm like, well, he did. And they just didn't know what to say or do. Wow. And then between being receiving the Melchizedek priesthood and going on a mission, there was a new state president called and he made me reconfess everything again as well, but he made me feel like a piece of garbage. And so this is the third time we've gone through, but I swallowed it and I felt like I deserved it because I've been the sinner. Right. Right. You're right? like, this is the Lord's process. This is the atonement yeah. working in my life. Exactly. But it was, that was something that sat un- uncomfortably on my shelf. And then the other thing, and I was just thinking about this on my way over, is that when I read and got into the Book of Mormon as a missionary, one thing that I found in the Book of Mormon is that all the sermons are directed to Nephites, quote unquote, members of the church. And they're very, very bold and they're very, very harsh. Mm-hmm. And I come home from my mission and I'm listening to what's in general conference and I see problems in the church, problems with gossiping, problems with clickiness, problems with people being hypocritical and all that. And then I go to general conference and they're talking about like the wickedness of the world. And I was like, that's not how the, this is weird because I read the book of Mormon for two years and I'm not a prophet or an apostle, but I'm seeing this pattern of the way they should be teaching, training and chastising and rebuking the church. And they're not, and there's all these problems that they don't deal with. 
And then everybody just writes it off to church culture. And so I actually got angry about the church and probably my first steps toward to apostasy was the church not being true enough hmm. instead of the church being obviously false. That's interesting. That is really interesting because yeah, for me, it was just little things not really making sense. And it just kind right. of, you know, I, when I realized that I started looking for other things and thinking, okay, so what else here doesn't make sense, right? Right. And I started finding all these things. And you bring up an interesting point about general conference is it is a little bit of like a, a pat on the back, you know, like, a, mm -hmm. aren't we so great? We are yeah. peculiar people. Yeah. I remember uh, Bednar came to our state conference once and yeah. he talked about he talked about how we're weird and how we got to mm -hmm. be proud of that. And so I always had this weird thing about, you know, how good I was for being mm -hmm. different from everybody else. And now, and now I'm socially stunted. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. And you're, you're learning how to work through that. Right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, okay. So moving on. So that's a little bit about our shelves 1.0. I'm going to get into my anger phase a little bit because um, that's really shelf 2.0, right? So shelf 2.0 for me was that experience with the stake presence making me reconfess. I became so angry at the church, so passionately angry. And at that last stake president in particular, I woke up every morning seething with rage. Um, have you seen V for Vendetta? Yeah. I love movies a lot. So a lot of my <laughs> references are always tiny movies. So he, he talks about the things that happened to him. V does when he was experimented on. Right. Yep. And he talks about how he was so angry and every morning he felt like he was so angry. He was going to be consumed with his anger kind of thing. And, and he says the things that were done to me were monstrous. And then uh, Natalie Portman says, well, then they created a monster. And that was how I felt like while I was working through this anger. Cause I, I remember my wife asking me, what's it going to take for you to let it go? And I said, when that stake president has seen the end of his family and then he dies and then I piss on his grave, then it'll be enough. That's how angry I was. Holy cow. Because, because I accepted that. I accepted that interview. I accepted those probing questions. I demeaned and debased myself so much because I thought it was true. Mm -hmm. And then to find out that it wasn't. It was, it was so unacceptable to me and I could not believe I was in such a vulnerable position that I, I, on and on and on about how the church did this to me. And I wish I could have gone back and just walked away. And really, when I look back on it now, the choice was there for me. I could have gotten up and said, I'm not going to answer your question. And I'm telling everybody about what happened right now. Mission be damned. I don't care. I'm going to the newspapers. I'm going everywhere. I could have done that. Yeah. And it's, I mean, we have such a thing for authority. Like you don't talk about it. Yeah. Outside. So right? I, like I recognize I was in a system that limited me that way, but ultimately I chose to participate. Right. And it's kind of, you have the, the SS guards in Auschwitz and, and stuff like that. 
where they went along with it. There were a lot of them who were like drug addicts and alcoholics because they couldn't really cope with what they were being forced to do. Mm-hmm. But they kept going along with it and maintain their complicity. And we look at those people in history and say, if that was me, if that was me, I would make a stand and I'd be hiding Jews in my attic. And blah. I don't think you would. No way. Most average people, and I am an average person, just went along with what the Nazi party was doing, even though they felt uncomfortable with it. Yep. And, and when the chips were on the table and I was in that interview, I went along with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause you, I mean, your, your whole life, You've been brought up. This is what you're working towards. And I remember telling somebody when I went through the temple, I was already kind of Pimo, right? Like right. I had already kind of thought three things and decided, yeah. oh, well, this is just my community. So I'm going to stick around for that. Yeah. And so I went through the temple uh, <laughs> as a Pimo. Yeah. And I, I told a friend, I said, I said, yeah, they could have brought out a goat and, you know, slaughtered it on the altar right in front of me. Yeah. And I would have been like, well, you know, I w- wouldn't have cared because I was already in, right? Yeah. Like I already did made that decision that I was going to go along with it. And, uh, and then my friend said, cause I had decided that I was going to stay mm-hmm. just because that's where my friends were. That's where my life was. Right. Yeah. And then my friend told me, he says, well, like how far is too far, right? Yeah. How, how much is too much? Yeah. And that, that made me think like, oh yeah, like what would it take for me to just like abandon the church? And then a few years pass and I realized, oh, it's not true, right? Like that should be the thing. That should be the thing. It's not what it claims to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think we get sucked into this whole thing and we live our life in it that it just becomes hard to leave behind. You're already in. Keep going. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like this is just what we do now. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I guess just to close off of my experience, that was what went on my second shelf was that what happened to me was so terrible that for me to even think that I could have done something different was beyond me to think that the onus had been on me to walk out of that interview room and say, this is ridiculous and I won't have any part of it. That item went on my second shelf. My ownership in the whole ordeal went on the shelf. I couldn't process that. And that took me a long time to process and to come back and say, I was wrong. I made a mistake. I need to think about what I do when I get into other situations like this going forward. So whether it's a boss or a friend or somebody who's doing something that's not right. And I feel like I'm just going to go along with it because that's the way it is. I need to think about what I'm doing in those situations going forward. And once that I was able to process things like that and take some ownership, my absolute blinding hatred for this particular state president started to dissipate. And I remember almost he's a surgeon and he's on rate my MD. And I was going to, I was this close and I'm, I'm holding up my fingers about an inch. I was this close to saying, to typing up a review and saying he's a professional surgeon, but he did spend nine years of his life asking teenagers if they masturbated. 
And I had to talk myself down off the ledge because I was just like, revenge is the only thing for him to feel ashamed and horrible about himself is the only thing that'll make me feel right. Right. And so if I can publicly announce and declare the things that he did behind closed doors, then I'll feel better. But of course, I actually posted and asked that question on the ex-Mormon subreddit and everybody said, if you don't have a recording to prove it, this is going to become libel. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't have a recording to prove it. So I took their advice and didn't do anything. But what helped me let it go was just accepting personal responsibility. And my personal responsibility for my complicity in the Mormon church was what went on my second shelf. It gave me such severe cognitive dissonance that I was perpetually angry. Hmm. So what have you got on your second shelf? What are you angry about? What are you working through in your anger phase? Um, I think it's it's largely just you know stupid things that i i said as a teenager okay you know like i was judgy as anybody and i think we're going to talk more about this in our next episode but yeah i i thought you know oh everybody's going to hell and i am so righteous and i'm doing everything right and look at me and everybody who made like the smallest little, little infractions, you know, mm -hmm. like I was, I was the righteousness police going right. around. And uh, I had friends tell me that I had a look every time somebody would do something that wasn't like Mormon enough. Yeah. I would like give a look, not to them, not to the individual, but kind of like in the other direction, they could tell when, when I was judging somebody in, right. in my head. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I just, like it, it frustrates me because I, it was me trying so hard to be the good Mormon kid, right? Like I put all that effort in and it frustrates me to come out of it and be like, what was I thinking? You know, like yeah. none of that matters. And yeah. I remember thinking, you know, oh, ma marriage is between a man and a woman. And, and now, and even you know, my, even my TBM family feels like, you know, whatever, you know, be with somebody who makes you happy. But as a teenager, I was so much more like, no, you got to toe the line. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I think that's, that's the thing that makes me angriest. I don't know if it's like a, a shelf thing, but it does frustrate me, um, about just who I was before in, instead of trying to be like a decent person from the beginning, I was trying to store up blessings in heaven. So I guess it like this might, the, the controversial thing that I'd say, maybe the thing that the ex Mormon community would disagree with is I'd say the thing that's on your shelf right now is you accepting that it was you who did that. Hmm. The church didn't make you do that. And that's what I think is tough coming to terms with. Because when I make a mistake and I apologize for my mistake and just take ownership for it, I get over it. Right. Generally. Right. Yeah. And usually like it was, it, it's been an interesting thing as I've entered the professional world and I'm an accountant by trade. And especially in my first few years, I make some errors and errors in reports and stuff like that. And I'd have to come back to management and say, I missed this or I missed this. I'm very sorry. This is what I'm going to do to get over it and make sure it doesn't happen again. And that was good enough for management. And I just found this own it, accept it, get over it yeah. kind of 
way to be right and i think that's what sits on your second shelf is taking ownership that it was you did that right 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 the church didn't make you do it yeah you did it you're not that person anymore now get over it right right (laughs) and i'm not you know like as a kid i had a lot of anger problems so i think maybe i was fortunate in that way because i I learned to work through those things. Oh, okay. Before before I left, so yeah. I I have things that irritate me, and every now and then, you know, when it yeah. comes up, but it's not something I think about on like a daily basis. You know, yeah. It's just when I look back, then I'm like, I was an idiot. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah. But I get so I can tell you guys. I guess for now, it's that time of the episode where we're coming to the conclusion on this discussion. I can tell you about the dumbest thing I ever did as a Mormon. Please. And why I don't care. I don't care about telling the story anymore because it's not me. It has nothing to do with my perception of myself as who I am now. So I don't really care because it's like, yeah, that of course I did this thing because that's who I was and what I was doing. So I was, um, I was about 22 and I was, I was home from my mission and I was dating somebody. And a bunch of my friends had just gotten married and I've been dating this person for about two weeks. And I would say things were going good, not great. Just as a relationship, like it was, yeah, it was going, but was this really somebody I was crazy about? Not quite, but Hey, it was somebody, but, uh, and I, I'm a hundred percent sure she felt the same way about me. Um, but then I, I was working, uh, in the parks department for the city for local municipality. So I spent a lot of time outside and I'm just outside and I'm cutting the grass. And I just have this overwhelming spiritual feeling that this is the girl I'm going to marry, that this is it. And it matched up with other spiritual feelings and confirmations I'd received while I was a missionary. And, and those ones I'd received some kind of confirmation about something and, and coincidentally it'd work out. So I have that same feeling again. And I remember just feeling like, wow, this is it. Like I've, I've met her now. The search is over. That's cool. I get, you know, and then feeling this overwhelming sense of dread of like, I'm not sure about this. I'm really not, but I felt this, this is the person I'm going to marry. And so probably within a week of that. So after we've been dating exclusively for about three or four weeks, I made a proposal. Holy cow. I did a BYU proposal. And as soon as it came out of my mouth, it was like, I want to say, just kidding. I want to say, just kidding. And she's like, are you serious? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, I don't, I don't know. I don't, let's just, uh, and so of course, when you do something like that, like it changes the whole power dynamic of the relationship and the relationship just progressively got worse and worse and worse until we broke up. And then uh, she went away overseas for a few months. And I remember feeling like I was still on the hook, even though I wasn't really interested in her, even though I wanted to move on, I felt like I was on the hook. So I was in this like mental limbo because I felt, well, God told me this is the person I was going to marry. So I guess I just have to keep seeing this through and, and keep going. And I wound myself up tighter and tighter and tighter. I got so wound up that I eventually, you know, developed a bit of a anxiety issue and part of that. But yeah, I lived that 
BYU insane person who proposes after two weeks life. I did it. That was me. That's amazing. And do you know what? Like I can look back at that guy and I've forgiven that guy now uh-huh. and just admitted to myself that, do you know what? My parents were trying to talk sense into me. Other people were trying to talk sense into me. Ultimately, I did that. The voices in my head did not make me do it. I'm the one who did it. And I take ownership for that. And I don't care anymore because I'm not Mormon anymore. Yeah. But that was something stupid I did. So I'm just like taking ownership has just helped me get over those stupid things. And now I can look back at them and laugh. Yeah. Because it's not a part of who I am anymore. Yeah. You let go. Yeah. 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 Well, I think that's a, that's a beautiful way to close it off. All right. Okay. So yeah, I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Bishop, for that testimony. We're going to be having, uh, going till, uh, 10 past the hour today, uh, <laughs> for, the, for the remainder yeah, of just our Just in testimony. case there's any, any listeners who truly miss church, 